dear mamas welcome to our healing of america seminar seminar number one section two today through moms for america my name is julene jackson i'm the national vice president for moms for america over cottage meetings thank you so much for joining us this morning so good to see you all it is june what is today june 9th we are heading into summer girls maybe some of you still have children in school maybe this is the last week of school maybe you've already had your last day of school and you just got that kind of summertime feeling uh, and so it's just it's always kind of fun at the beginning of the summer to take a little break from the routine i'm so glad you've chosen to be with us this summer with the healing of america series one hour every wednesday 11 standard time as we discuss these great principles this seminar this week is god's hand in building of america so there will be four workbooks that we will use over the course of the next 16 weeks next 16 weeks each workbook will take us for four weeks and there are four sections in each workbook i would really recommend going ahead and getting all of the workbooks now and just so you have them so you're not delayed and and so you can kind of keep up and fill in the blanks remember you have a little bit of homework each week i say if you just uh, will take about 15 minutes each day and uh, do a page or two or a few pages in review you'll come to our lesson ready to receive what you need to receive each week and so i just considered part of my like bible study my liberty study and and certain little things that i use in my my study each day and this is a part of my routine so I have attended or taught cottage meetings over the last 13 years of my life. And I have seen the transformation that has taken place in me as a woman, as a mother, as a wife, how it changed my marriage when we, my, me and my husband began to study these things together, how it impacted my extended family, my neighborhood, my community, how I ended up doing things at the state and even national level that I never would have dreamed of even a decade ago. I know the power of the cottage meeting and that's why I'm so delighted that you uh, are here with us today, that we're gonna teach one another, we're gonna you know, all share stories. The real magic occurs, girls, when you have cottage meetings in the home, not that this isn't magical together, you and I here uh, via Zoom across the country, but imagine six to eight to 12 mothers gathering once a week or once a month, whatever the needs might be in your community or neighborhood. And you teach one another these lessons and you um, share experiences and the spirit of God has always been there in cottage meetings I've attended. God wants to help the mothers and the grandmothers of America to shore up the four walls of your home. And, and I guarantee he will be there as you do that. So whether you continue to study online with us uh, on, our online, on our online cottage meeting, or eventually you choose to form a little study group in your own neighborhood, um, I promise you, you will be blessed for the efforts because the whole idea is as you come and learn together as women, you inevitably go home and you teach the people you love the most, your children, your grandchildren, your extended family members. And when a mother knows certain things, then her children, her posterity will know these things. And it will help you as you learn and study to stay anchored in hope. There's a lot of negativ negativity going on in the world today. 
You know, it's so interesting. Last week I was in Austin, Texas uh, at a heritage foundation representing moms for America and, um, and Ted Cruz spoke the last day, Dave Rubin, all kind of uh, leaders in this liberty movement and freedom fighters were there and spoke and were on panelists. I loved what Ted Cruz had to say though. He said, you know, I want you to know you are on the right side of things. But he said, uh, you are going to need to remember to be happy warriors. He said, there's a lot of angry, harsh people out there who want to turn us into soulless storm troopers. I think Ted Cruz likes uh, Star Wars. He had a lot of Star Wars analogies, but that idea of being a soulless storm trooper, not thinking for ourselves, not asking questions, just doing what we're told, kind of this embodiment of collectivism. And he said, this kind of thought, when we just go along and do what we're told, saps the human spirit. And I thought, as I thought about this idea of being a happy and a hopeful warrior, I thought, you know, when we are rooted in truth and God and a love of freedom, that is when we are happy warriors. We see the big picture and we know that God has our back. This is who we studied last week, happy warriors. Not that their path was easy, little Joan of Arc, what she was called to do and Christopher Columbus being led to come to this new world and that pilgrims leaving the world that they knew and taking their children and their families uh, into really the unknown. So we see over the course of 350 years from Joan of Arc to where we are, uh, where, where we'll be studying today in, in the early 1760s, um, 70s, uh, uh, today in our study plan. It's interesting to note that during that course of period from when the pilgrims first came and landed in 1620 to what will go up to about 1760 right now, one out of every four Englishmen were migrating to this new world, fleeing the oppression of rulers law, these harsh kingly governments that they were under in England. And so now everyone has their book. Hopefully we're in section two, seminar one, section two. England and the colonies are going to split people that were raised up for this very purpose. Happy warriors. This is what we're going to try and be happy and hopeful warriors. So we're at around 1760. King George III is the king of England. And he was the first king of that century that was not German. He was very popular among the English people because they considered him a true patriot king. He was educated in England, born in England. King George III would actually go on to have 15 children and ultimately at the end of his life he went insane. I've heard some people laugh maybe it was all those children but he was a good moral man but in the early 1760s he was ordering strict enforcement of acts from England uh, to, to oversee and to lead the, the colonists in America. And he had put forth a navigation act, which meant that he wanted uh, 
no one to purchase foreign goods from other lands. The idea was to buy English and to keep the money at home. And so there began to be extensive smuggling, both in England and America. And the king trying to suppress the smuggling and this bartering and trading and buying with other countries. He was actually having homes searched, private businesses uh, searched, looking for smuggled goods. Now this didn't set well with the colonists in America. And in fact, he forbade the little colonists in the new world to cross the mountains and began to settle in, in the Ohio Valley. And some of the colonists had already done that and resentment was, was growing uh, with uh, this kind of control he was trying to exert from across the ocean. And then in 1765, King George passed the Stamp Act, which was a form of a tax where he said all printed materials, legal documents, newspapers, magazines had to be produced on paper in made in England, London, and had to have a, a stamp on it. And so you, the, the people really began, the colonists in America began to push back against these kind of acts. And so he repealed the Stamp Act in 1766, but a new act he put forth called the Townsend Act. And it was really just a series of tax programs, taxing glass and tea and lead and paint and paper. And in fact, he even passed a quartering act, King James III, which required the colonies to provide room and board for the soldiers, the British soldiers that were now coming over uh, to America. And so you can see that the situation was ripening uh, for uh, violence in America. And in March of 1770 occurred the Boston Massacre. Have you remember studying that in school? There was about a crowd of 300 men and boys that had gathered in Boston. Now at this point, at this time in Boston, there is about 16,000 colonists and 2000 British uh, soldiers. And um, the, the colonists, the, this crowd of 300 men were provoking the soldiers and they began to throw, there was still snow on the ground in Boston in March. They began to throw snowballs. Some of the snowballs had rocks and other objects at the soldiers and it became quite urgent. And so the soldiers actually fired on the crowd and five colonists died at that Boston massacre. So imagine all the reports and depictions and even some of the propaganda that now began to be spun as, as uh, the tensions even heightened more throughout the 13 colonies. And then, um, to add insult to injury, all the tea, there were such tea drinkers in those days, all the tea that was coming in was being taxed. And uh, most of the colonies were just sending that tea back to England because they didn't want to pay that English tax on the tea when they could uh, get tea cheaper elsewhere. And except for Boston, they, the governor of Boston at that time refused to let the tea ships return until they were unloaded and the people refused to unload the tea. So in December of 1773, the Sons of Liberty in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, snuck on board uh, the ship that was holding all this tea and they dumped it in the harbor and some dressed up as Indians. And uh, that 
that movement, the Sons of Liberty, were led by Samuel Adams. Have you heard of Samuel Adams? He was the second cousin to John Adams. And he, this group of the Sons of Liberty, I like this name because the very first cottage meeting that I started with a group of ladies in Oregon, we called ourselves the Sisters of Liberty. And there was actually a group of Sisters of Liberty that they called themselves that at that time during that early American revolutionary time period. So I feel a kinship to the Sons of Liberty led by Samuel Adams. They were provocateurs and patriots and they, they used civil disobedience to intimidate the loyalist and to outrage this British government from these harsh acts and restrictions that they were putting on the colonists. Some say there might not have even been a war if it had not been for Samuel Adams. He was like at the forefront. He was a great freedom fighter, almost the ultimate patriot. And so when King George heard about this Boston Tea Party, his reaction was swift and it was vengeful. He closed the Boston Harbor. He placed the city under martial law. He put in a military general as the new governor. He shut down the charter of Massachusetts and their elected assemblies, canceled all the town hall meetings. And these measures were then began to be known as the intolerable acts. And this is when at this time period in 1774, the first continental Continental Congress voluntary uh, met in the fall of 1774 to forestall the outbreak of war that was on the horizon. As nevertheless, the colonists were determined to stand up for their rights uh, by whatever means was necessary. And hence we see Mama's a new nation is about to be born. So we talked about Samuel Adams. He was called the father of the American uh, Revolutionary War. It's interesting, did you know that George Washington was called the father of uh, our, our nation, Samuel Adams, the father of the American Revolutionary War. James Madison was the father of the Constitution. We'll learn a little bit about him in the next two weeks. And Benjamin Franklin was known as the father of morality. Does that surprise you? Modern day historians have really defamed his reputation and character. He was actually known as the father of morality. Hence, we call these great men our forefathers. So Samuel Adams, he, um, he entered Harvard, it's the oldest university in America. Harvard was the first university established in the United States at 14. Uh, and he graduated with a degree, master's degree at 21. He could have been a wealthy man and he passed up Samuel Adams, uh, several lucrative um, offers, but to stay in the mainstream politics of Massachusetts because he looked on politics as a divine science of government to pr promote human happiness. With Samuel Adams, the principles of freedom and sound government were a part of his religion. He understood that you can't have the gospel of Jesus Christ if you don't have a maximum environment of freedom. And he, therefore, had a deep conviction for the gospel of freedom. I love Samuel Adams because of that. He was the first American to have a price put on his head. At first, the British officials tried to bribe him with gold and high offices, uh, but he, of course, refused to accept these bribes. So they issued a 500 pound 
uh, reward for his capture, dead or alive. So these were dangerous times these men were having to navigate as they were putting their lives, their fortunes and their honors on the line to go against King George at the peril of their lives. And so there's over this next 12 months, there's going to be a change of loyalty that we're going to see from uh, the English now to the uh, uh, being loyal to these 13 colonies during over the course of the 15 years from about 1760 to 1775, the people were met by the abuses of, of um, England and they would write letters and they'd have protests and send petitions. And it even says in the Declaration of Independence, at every stage of our oppression, we have petitioned the government and we have just been met with repeated injuries. So this wasn't just an overnight thing they decided for in their minds, I had been years and years of abuses that they had had to endure while being ignored largely by the leadership and the government in England. And so the shot that was heard around the world in April of 1775, the first battle of Lexington and Concord. And, um, you know, every year that is reenacted in uh, Lexington, that shot that's heard around the world. It was canceled this year because of COVID, but I would love to when you'll be there on April 19th. And that's the famous Paul Revere ride when he rode through town that night. And he said, I'll put one lamp if we're if the British are coming by land and I'll put two lamps up in the, the, the steeple tower of the North Church if the British are coming by sea. And then just a month later uh, in um, June of 1775 is the Battle of Bunker Hill. Has anyone been to Bunker Hill in, in Massachusetts in Boston? And we lost 500 Americans at that battle and the British lost a thousand. And I think that really, that battle at Bunker Hill proved to the Brits that the colonists were serious foes. That was the first real battle leading up to uh, the uh, beginning of the Revolutionary War. And so George Washington in um, July, just a few months after the Battle of Bunker Hill, George Washington takes over command of the Continental Army, our George. And the very next month in August of 1775, King George issued a fatal proclamation declaring general rebellion amongst the colonies and that any rebel leaders would be arrested as traitors and brought to justice. And that would mean uh, execution, really what they did in those days for traitors, they would hang them until unconscious, bring them down, revive them, disembowel them, cut them up in parts and bury those parts in different areas around um, the land. And so, uh, it makes waterboarding kind of seem mild compared to what they did to traders in those days. And then just a few days before Christmas in 1775, um, King George issued an even harsher proclamation abolishing the colonist status as British subjects, uh, therefore treating all Americans as the enemy. They were no longer going to trade with us. They were going to outlaw all colonies, American ships could be seized, their cargoes could be confiscated, their crews would be drafted into the British Navy. And so at this point, the colonists could not tolerate any more of these abuses. 
And so, girls, we are at the fateful year of 1776. Now, we usually think of 1776 as one of the most glorious years in American history. But if you had lived at that time, I don't think you would have said or thought that it was very glorious. Some considered this, in fact, the worst years in America's formative period. You know, as I thought about that, it makes me think of, of my life and of your life. You know, isn't this how life is? Sometimes our worst years, when we look back on it, were our most formative years. We learned our greatest lessons through some of our hardest years. I think of the years I had to bury children or bury as a young girl, a mama. And I think how those events changed the course of my life and made me the woman that I am. But there is a time when we're going through something that it almost feels like the heaven has just unleashed all of her powers against you. And we have to endure dark seasons for a time. But your greatest lessons and your greatest victories often occur, occur as you work through these dark hours of our life, of our history, and, and of the history of America for those that had to live during this fateful year of 1776. So um, our, our, the Americans had lost a campaign uh, amongst that they were fighting up in that Canadian area in the early 1776. So they came back down to join Washington's forces. And uh, during that earlier, that seize of Boston, more than 4,000 of Washington's uh, troops had left him. Many of his troops were becoming sick and weak and the enlistments for the Continental Army only lasted for six months. So many of the soldiers were not re-enlisting at this point and morale was low uh, in the early 1776. And in fact, um, because of, of the English losing over a thousand people during Bunker Hill, they were just kind of hiding out because of their losses, waiting for, uh, you know, more soldiers from England to arrive. And so the Americans really didn't have anything to do. And they actually began to fight amongst themselves. And, uh, and knowing that they had been completely disowned by King George III, there was probably some anxiety and tension going on there. And also not to mention that many of the leaders in the colonies recognized that the circumstances that might force them into a state of separation or independence from Britain was going to leave them wholly unprepared to govern themselves. You know, once they declared their independence, what now? What do we do now? So Virginia at that time was the largest colony. And so people looked to Virginia to lead out as far as self-governance. And uh, Virginia had already tried six different drafts of a practical constitution, and they were just uncertain about which one would be best. So in enters Thomas Jefferson, who is a Virginian. He, at this point in 1776, was 33 years old. He had been married just four years, a newlywed. And he really was, in the history of the colonies at that time, the foremost constitutionalist, they say, in the world. Imagine then how distressed he was knowing that the scholars around him, the few scholars of that day, 
were not really prepared to support what he felt needed to be done. Now, he had written three constitutional drafts in just five weeks during this time period, but none of them had been accepted by the Virginia legislature. In fact, Virginia at this point was just going to adopt a temporary constitution, but they were going to maintain much of the weaknesses that existed under British rule. So imagine how reprehensible that must have felt to George Washington to still hang on to what was familiar, uh, even though they were fighting against the very things that they were trying to do away with. But that's the very things that the, the Virginia legislature was including in their new constitution, still allowing slavery to be perpetuated and promogeniture and until the states and having an official church uh, state, just like they did in England and having people pay taxes to the church, even if they didn't, weren't even members. And so Thomas Jefferson was not pleased with the constitution, uh, you, you know, that was coming out of Virginia. I think he knew, Thomas Jefferson instinctively knew that America was going to win this war that they were hadn't even fully embarked upon. But he feared that these colonists wouldn't know what to do with freedom once they got it. So he wanted the Virginia Constitution to be an example and a model to the other states. So here it is, 1776, and Jefferson has is beginning to discover some of the basic success formulas that he was going to ultimately incorporate into the Constitution, but he was having a hard time getting others to accept these ideas, even though he was probably the best prepared founder to launch this campaign. His educational background, as you study the life of Thomas Jefferson, you can really see how God rose him up to do what he was going to do. It was his, his educational background was remarkable, even by modern day standards. As a young boy, he studied Latin, Greek, French, all by the age of nine. When he was 16 years old, he entered the College of William and Mary. Have you ever heard of that college? It still exists today in Williamsburg, Virginia. It is the second oldest college in America, founded in 1693. A few years ago, I just lived like not even a half a mile from that campus. And I would walk down there often. It's just the dreamiest. It's in colonial style, the cobblestone bricks. And um, there, Thomas Jefferson was educated for two years. He graduated at the age of 18. And then he would go on for five years to study law under George Wythe who was known as the first uh, legal scholar in America, the first law professor of America, George Wythe. So in 1940s, 50s, Rockefeller came and he, he uh, redid Colonial Williamsburg. And so you can visit there now and all the homes, the Capitol, the House of Burgess, the governor's palace has been redone. And the George Wythe home is actually, I think it's one of the, and a lot of these homes are on the original foundation. And um, I would go to the George Wythe home often. It's my most favorite house in all of Colonial Williamsburg. And you see the room that um, Thomas Jefferson studied law 12 to 14 hours a day under George Wythe. 
And it says uh, in the reading that he would, he sometimes would go uh, take breaks and he would um, walk. And as he would walk to take a little break, uh, as he was studying during this time period, he would memorize. I'll never forget learning that several years ago, how George or how Thomas Jefferson would memorize on his walks. And girls, I began to memorize on my walk. I memorized big chunks of the Declaration of Independence. It's almost like I felt Thomas just rising up in me as I desired to learn these things that, that he was studying. I, I uh, memorized the seven articles, the 27 amendments. I have memorized for years now when I go out, I walk the dog every day for about an hour. And uh, that's exactly what um, he did as a young man uh, to kind of break up this intense five-year period of studying the law. When he um, actually took the bar examination for the law, it was said that he knew more than the men that were actually giving him the examination. So he had gained as a summary proficiency in five languages as a young man. He studied Roman classics, Greek classics. He studied European history. He carefully studied the Old and New Testaments. And um, girls, I have here, it's called the Jefferson Bible. What he did, many people like to portray him as godless or a deist. He calls himself a true Christian in this book. I would highly recommend it. I don't know if you can see that. It's called the Jefferson Bible. And he, in his lifetime, would cut out extracts of the stories and the parables and Jesus' teachings. And he would write, he would paste them on white paper and put them in four columns of, in French, Latin, English, and one more English. My husband just walked in. I got a little distracted. But anyways, he would study the words of Christ in four languages. And it's even said that he would fold them up and put them in his uh, little pocket next to his breast to keep those words close. Ultimately, he would go on to um, bind this little Bible that he had made and he carried it. Yeah, it was a small little pocket called the Jefferson Bible. And you, you get the full little Jefferson Bible and then commentary about his views about God and his spirituality. Even though he was a private man, he was very much a believer in, in God. And so I would recommend this, put this on your list of books to, to get as you build your I Love America library. So while he was studying the history of Israel, he made an astonishing discovery. And we talked a little bit about it last week. He saw that during the time of the Israelites and Moses, that they were practicing the early, earliest and most efficient form of representative government. Remember how we talked about that, how Moses made captains of uh, over families of 10 and 50 and 100 and 1,000 and only the most difficult problems he would hear and that people mostly solved their own problems at the local level. So he, he discerned this as he studied the Bible and, and the Israelites, and he realized that as long as they followed a fixed pattern of constitutional principles, the civilizations flourished. But when they drifted from this representative uh, government by the voice of the people, when they drifted from that, that is when disaster overtook them. And so Jefferson would often refer to this constitutional pattern that he saw in the scriptures 
as these ancient principles. And it would be these ancient principles that he was going to embed in the first and second paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And he also, uh, Thomas Jefferson, was surprised to find that the Anglo-Saxons, remember who many believe they were part of the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel that scattered, that these Anglo-Saxons were using these same ancient principles that followed a pattern almost identical to what the Israelites were in about the 880 during that Anglo-Saxon period. And so Jefferson's years of intense study made the following impression on a stranger who did not know him when he said, when Jefferson spoke of law, I thought he was a lawyer. When he talked about mechanics, I was for sure that he was an engineer. When he got into medicine, it was evident that he was a physician. When he discussed theology, I was convinced he must be a clergyman. When he talked of literature, I made up my mind that I had run up against a college professor who knew everything. So you can see he was a unique mind uh, that God rose up for uh, this time, kind of like Esther. She had been born for a time such as this. Thomas Jefferson had been born and prepared for a time such as this. Thomas Jefferson uh, was going to die 83 years later on the 4th of July, the same day. And that's a great story that John Adams would die. They both died almost hours from each other. But Thomas Jefferson would live most of his life um, at a, a home called Monticello. And he inherited 5,000 acres at 21 from his father. And, and when he died, he had uh, about 11,000 acres. It is a mountainside home today. You can take a tour of Monticello. It's just about an hour and a half outside of Washington, DC. It is beautiful. It is magnificent. He designed the home. It's just outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, very close to the University of Virginia, which Thomas Jefferson actually founded in 1819. So Thomas Jefferson is buried there at Monticello. There's a graveyard. And on his uh, tombstone, he said he wanted to be remembered by three things. And it's on his tombstone. Number one, that he was the author of the Declaration of Independence. Number two, he was the author of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom. What does that tell you about this man? And number three, that he was the father of the University of Virginia. So he and his little Martha, they were only married 10 years. Martha had been married. They got married when um, Thomas Jefferson was 29 and she was 24 and she had been married and widowed and, and her uh, little babe who lived to be three years old also died. So Martha, you know, when she came to George, she had already done quite a bit of living. She was a strong woman. He had adored Martha. He said, I have lived the last 10 years in uncheckered happiness with his Martha. She would die. They only had 10 years together. She would die at age 34. Over the course of their 10 years of marriage, she would have six children with him. Only two of his daughters would live into adulthood. One of his wedding gifts to Martha was a piano, and that piano is still at Monticello. If you take a tour of Monticello, you will see it there. So did you know that Thomas Jefferson was a violinist, and she would play the piano, and he would play the violin, and they had a happy marriage, and she was a popular woman, a gracious hostess who managed their large home. 
And it, it said that she was attracted to Thomas uh, because of their mutual love of music. And it said on her deathbed, there was a servant in the room that heard her make a promise to him that she would, that he would not marry again. And he never did marry again. Now he inherited slaves at 21 and he certainly was under obligation to the bank for them. Girls, if I could recommend a wonderful book called The Real Thomas Jefferson, there's, uh, there, there's uh, The Real George Washington, The Real Benjamin Franklin, and The Real Thomas Jefferson. I could say a lot about the Sally Hemings um, controversy, uh, having illegitimate children with his slaves, but it is debunked. That story is debunked. It was started by an enemy of his by the name of James Callender. Uh, Jefferson, when at the time he was president, James Callender wanted to be given a position as postmaster in Virginia. Uh, Thomas Jefferson did not. And so this calendar, Mr. Callender, who was also a reporter at the time, began to write stories of lies of him fathering Ill illegitimate children when everyone knew that it was the nephew of Thomas Jefferson that was notorious for his mistresses uh, amongst the slaves on Thomas Jefferson's um, uh, home. And so, you know, that story has always existed. It's interesting that it didn't really come to full light and come and kind of take on a life of its own with Thomas Jefferson found uh, fathering illegitimate children uh, until um, I thought it was interesting, all the controversy with Bill Clinton when Monica Lewinsky and, and all that uh, sexual scandal in office. And so you began to hear a lot more about, you know, the sexual deviances of Thomas Jefferson during that Bill Clinton um, fiasco. And I think it's because if they could get you to believe that, look, even our founding fathers, you know, did things that were inappropriate in office, maybe what Bill Clinton was doing wasn't, wasn't uh, as bad as it seemed. And so um, please get this because that whole story is explained in even when you go to Monticello, there's books in the visitor center that completely refute, you know, the what the tour guides are saying as they take you through the home and they talk about Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson's slave children. And so um, if I could recommend to you girls going to the thomasjeffersoncenter.com website, tjc.com, and up comes um, a picture of a really, I think, handsome black man. And he gives a one hour presentation on slavery and the founding fathers dispelling the smear campaign against the founding fathers. And he tells the story about this smear job on the reputation of Thomas Jefferson. And it's really good. It's one hour and um, it's presented by Al Jackson. Who is my husband? <laughs> but it's, it's a good presentation. He's given it all over the country and it helps shed um, light because people today still think that Thomas Jefferson uh, was a, a hypocrite and a, you know, a sexual pervert or deviant because he, you know, didn't, didn't walk the talk and he most certainly did. So anyways, just do a little further study uh, in the true um, Thomas Jefferson, or just pull up the one hour presentation under the tjc.com, pull it up and, and listen to it while you're doing the dishes sometime this week. 
you know, it's interesting. Thomas Jefferson says uh, he didn't really even refute the lies when he was president that Calendar, this um, reporter, was putting in the newspapers because he said, my friends know the truth and my enemies wouldn't believe me even if I did try to refute it. So he just didn't pay any mind to it. But that story stayed out there and was really brought to light during the 90s with President Clinton. Okay, so Thomas Jefferson was caught up in the spirit of independence in 1776 that was, you know, rising sharply now throughout the colonies in the spring of 1776. So Thomas Jefferson was a member of the Continental Congress, but also the Virginia legislature. And um, also at that same time, two years earlier, an Englishman by the name of Thomas Paine had arrived in America and he had published a little pamphlet called common sense. Have you heard of it? And in it, Thomas Paine advocated immediate independence and it sold over uh, 120,000 copies. And um, that really was a phenomenal circulation for the day. There was only 3 million uh, colonists. And so that would have been equivalent uh, to a bestseller today. It would have been equivalent to selling 13 million books of a bestseller at this time. So many people were reading that common sense. In fact, that's what the little soldiers would read around the campfires at night. You know, these are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldiers and the sunshine patriots will shrink from this crisis before us. And George Washington said that this little pamphlet worked a powerful change in the, might, in, in the minds of many men at that time. And so here it is now, May of 1776, and the Continental Congress has been asked to come to Philadelphia. Thomas Jefferson didn't really want to be in Philadelphia. He wanted to be at the House of Burgess in Virginia, working on this constitution, trying to decide what would be the best way for this people, this soon to be free people to govern themselves. And he, he almost asked for an excused absence. Uh, he said, could he, could he uh, not attend this meeting? And they said that they needed him there. So he came. Now, this was a hard year, 1776, for a man who was going to do something so important. You would think maybe God would ease up on him, knowing the responsibilities of him having to write this document. But it was almost like one of the worst years of his life. He left his home. He had just buried uh, one of his little girls. His wife was very sick at Monticello. His mother had just died in March, and he was worried sick about this constitution that the Virginia legislature was working on that was not, he knew was not up to par. And not to mention at this time period, he was having severe migraines and headaches that would last weeks and weeks. Nevertheless, with all this going on, he left his home his Monticello, his Virginia, and rode all the hundreds of miles to Philadelphia in obedience to this order because he knew probably that God had a work for him to do. Just like we're going to learn about George Washington next week, how he longed to come home to his life in the Potomac 
but he knew that God had a work for him to do. And so Jefferson was called to sit in on a committee to draft this Declaration of Independence. And um, John Adams was on that committee. And, and there's a funny little dialogue that the two of them have. Adams, who we know would go on to become the second president of the United States, and, and Jefferson would go on to become the third. But Adams, at the time, Jefferson said, you need to write this document. And Adams said, I will not. And Jefferson said, why not? And Adams said, uh, uh, reasons enough. First of all, you're a Virginian and a Virginian ought to appear at the head of this business. And reason number two, I am obnoxious, suspected and unpopular and you're very much otherwise. And reason third, you can write 10 times better than I can. And so uh, I think it's cute how they didn't allow egos to get into, in, in the way here. And so Thomas Jefferson probably realized he, you know, Adam spoke truth. And so he, for 17 days, was holed up in a little rented room in downtown Philadelphia. And there Thomas Jefferson would write the Declaration of Independence. Now, it only took one of those 17 days to write most of the Constitution, which was just basically a list of all the grievances that they had suffered at the hand of King George and, and England. And Thomas Jefferson had already written this list of grievances in a, a Virginian uh, Constitution that he was working on. But it was with great anxiety that he would spend the next 16 days in this little room getting into the declaration, the most basic elements of his ancient principles as he would call them. And he pulled these ancient principles from the books of Deuteronomy and Exodus and Genesis. There's at least eight of these ancient principles that are woven into the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. And that's why I chose to kind of memorize those, particularly those first two paragraphs that talk about biblical principles of self-evident truth and the laws of nature and nature's God, and that how creator, our creator had made us equally and that we're all equal in his eyes and that these unalienable God-given rights can't be taken away from us. And the most important of these rights is the right to life and liberty and to be able to pursue what we want, their property. And that government was instituted to protect those inalienable rights and that they exist to govern at the consent of the governed us and that the people can alter or abolish governments that have become tyrannical. Those are all biblical principles. And that is what 16 days he was gleaning and taking from the Bible and embedding them into this sacred document that I've heard many people declare is almost akin to scripture. And, you know, almost as if feeling the weight of what he was doing with these headaches at night, he brought his little violin and he would play his violin at night and people could hear Jefferson playing the violin almost to ease some of this anxiety and pressure that he was feeling. And later on in life, Thomas Jefferson would go on to say that this heavenly bond of our union, this declaration of independence, he felt these principles would be eternal. And it makes me think, I wonder if he thought that these governing principles would take us on into some sort of millennial age, the greatness of the work which he was doing, that he and many others would say was struck off by the hand of God. 
And so there you have it. And on July 4th, the Congress adopted this Declaration of Independence that Thomas Jefferson wrote, and they made 60 changes to that declaration, but they did not delete a single one of Jefferson's ancient principles, which is interesting. And then a copy was uh, assigned, 56 signers of the declaration. And this copy that was signed is actually in the archives building um, on Constitutional Avenue in Washington, DC. And they have opened back up the archives. You can go see uh, one of the original declarations and the constitution. And you'll see that John Hancock, one of the signers signed his name extra large on the Declaration of Independence so that the king could see it without his glasses, kind of a dig. They say that Hancock made to uh, King George III. Now they kept it uh, secret, originally the author of this Declaration of Independence out of fear of retaliation against the British on Jefferson. But you can see those 56 men who signed this declaration literally signed with their blood in support of the declaration as they mutually pledged to each other. It says that in the very last paragraph of that declaration, their lives, their fortunes and their sacred honors, knowing that if they were caught over the course of the Revolutionary War, that they would suffer a gruesome death, but they were willing to do it. I think sometimes we just take for granted and don't really realize what they were doing when they wrote and they signed their names to this freedom document. And so my dear um, mamas, Jefferson reveals the source of his ancient principles. At this time, Jefferson was appointed to sit on a special committee with Benjamin Franklin and John Adams to also prepare an official seal for the United States. And this seal would go on to be put on our money, our dollar bill. The seal is on passports, on treaties. It's kind of what the seal of the president uh, was based off of this seal that uh, these men were going to come up with. And isn't it interesting that they wanted, Jefferson and Franklin suggested that on one side of the seal portray Moses leading ancient Israel um, out of Egypt uh, because of it being the first ancient people to practice the principles of representative government. So that's what they wanted on one side of the seal. And then on the other side of the seal, they wanted the Anglo-Saxon chiefs, Horsa and uh, Hanga, Hengus and Horsa, because they, um, these Saxon chiefs came from those Anglo-Saxons that taught that same, those same ancient principles of common law that was rooted in the law of Moses that was identical to what they found in the books of Genesis and Deuteronomy. But so there, if you look on the last page of section two, you can see something of what they might have had in mind to be our seals uh, of America. But the other members of Congress, not quite being as studious and really understanding where these ancient principles came from, thought that that, that seal was a little too complicated. And so they came up with the eagle in 1782 and the unfinished pyramid. And then uh, the 13 steps there of that pyramid representing the 13 colonies. And then you'll see some Latin phrases of e pluris unum, meaning out of many become one, out of many colonies will emerge this one um, nation. And then you see uh, on the other side of the sill, we have the all 
the eye of the all-knowing creator. Did you know that? That's God's eye on our money today. And the Roman, uh, Roman numeral 1776 on the bottom of that pyramid. And then Latin phrases, beginning of a new age. And at the top, um, he hath favored our undertaking. And so my beautiful mamas of America, you're all spread out this great country today. And we are learning about these happy warriors. Just because you're happy doesn't mean that the way is easy. Sometimes our path will be hard, but there is a contentment and a confidence and a courage and a determination that happy warriors have. And that's what we saw in little Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus and the Pilgrims. That's what we saw in Samuel Adams, the father of the American Revolutionary War and the genius of Thomas Jefferson. So we see now in, in the, the history in 1776, the Eastern seaboard is becoming populated with over 3 million English immigrants. Remember one out of every four Englishmen at this time were coming to America because I think they might've instinctively known that there, this is a land of freedom. So that fateful year, 1776, uh, is going to lead us now next week into the ragtag army of farmers and unskilled laborers and young boys and old men. We're going to talk about the Revolutionary War, that eight years. Uh, of the Continental Army and the great George Washington. I can hardly, Vivian always makes fun of me because my voice always shakes, <laughs> quivers when I say George Washington. I really, you know, I have such a feeling and a, a devotion and a love for him as I've studied his life and read books on him. I mean, really, he's the kind of man that if more men were like George Washington and really all these great founders, the very gates of hell would shake forever because these men were fearless. And they were faithful, God-fearing, freedom-loving men that were willing to put their lives on the line for us. And we are living, we are the beneficiaries of, of what they chose to do uh, during their lives. So as we study their lives in this wonderful book, the first seminar of God's hand in building and establishing America and how he used these men and women to do such bad things. I just hope your reverence and your awe for our founding fathers and founding mothers and the sacrifices that they made uh, just burn in your heart. I want you to know that all these little stories that I have studied as I take this seminar, I teach my little 13-year-old in our morning devotional. So she once again has heard the story the last few days of Joan of Arc. And, you know, uh, now that school is coming to an end, I'll have to figure out how I want to do my morning devotional with her in the summer because things get a little loose in the summer. But the whole idea is as we learn these things about, you know, Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson and Samuel Adams is that we teach other people and, and people I can guarantee you're going to go, oh yeah, but Thomas Jefferson, you know what he did with Sally Hemings and he had, you know, all these illegitimate children. Well, guess what? Now you're going to be able to speak up and tell them, you know, the, the, the other side of the story and refer them to, you know, the little one hour presentation by Al Jackson on the TJC com or tell them, Hey, there's a book I really want you to read. Um, 
I had the funniest story uh, about talking to a governor and he got the story wrong about Benjamin Franklin. And I, because I knew my history of Benjamin Franklin, and I'll tell you about that in section four in two weeks from now. But when you know these things, you really can be the means of setting the record straight and changing people's hearts and minds about our founding fathers, whose reputations really have been maligned through the years in modern historians. And so, you know, I, I love Thomas Jefferson because he understood uh, that his way, his path was not easy, but he knew that God was upholding him. Did you know that he mentions God five times in the Declaration of Independence? And to think historians will say that he was an, a, a God-fearing a spiritual man. He, he wrote, he, he referred to God and to our creator and to our judge uh, five times in that uh, Declaration of Independence because he knew God was upholding him and had to uphold this new nation as they move forward. And girls, what I hope as we learn these things is I hope it burns in our hearts that God is going to uphold us as well as we seek him, as we try and shore up the people we love the most, our children, our grandchildren, as we keep turning to God, we will justify the heavens to intervene on our behalf as we continue to pray morning and night and gather our little children, gather your little grandchildren when you have them, drop to your knees and pray or just get in a circle. Sometimes we kneel, sometimes if we're out the door, we'll just hold hands and say a quick prayer before we get out the door with whoever's home. But as you make it a habit to study the word and to worship in whichever way feels most right to you, and as you continue to make your family a high priority, quality family time together, I have most of my kids are adults. I have a 26-year-old, a 23-year-old, a 21-year-old, an 18-year-old. And sometimes they don't always like things that mom and daddy say to them. And they, you know, they don't want, they don't want to talk to mom when mom has been a little too honest with them. And, and so sometimes I'm like, oh, I'll just let them be for a, a week or two. But I always last night was one of those I hadn't talked to one of my kids that sometimes avoids me a little bit because he doesn't always like mama's uh, advice and, and counsel to him and so I picked up the phone and, and had a good talk with him so continue to keep those kids close even if they don't like some of the things that you counsel and, and tell them don't don't ever get to the point where you're estranged because how how can you teach them the things that you're learning if your relationships aren't good or healed or or at least they can feel of the love that you have for them, even if you do have to chastise them from time to time. And girls, I'm so proud of you for learning and studying um, the history of America. And we're going to study the Constitution in a few weeks. And that will be so powerful for you to know uh, and understand this inspired document. What we're seeing in the world today is very dangerous, particularly in our country, because people are not rooted in our correct principles and constitutional principles in the correct stories of America. And so you see people acting on ignorance and ignorance leads to fear and fear leads to hate. And hence we've seen this, uh, you know, these, 
rioting and lootings and burnings and and over the last year, a few years, and it's been shocking. But when you understand and when you are educated, you are hopeful and you become now more productive. You want to be a part of the solution instead of going and, you know, burning and stealing and looting and rioting. You want to be about good change. You want to be a happy warrior, a warrior with purpose, a warrior with a mission, a warrior rooted in truth, God's law and constitutional law. And so this is the the quest that we are on this summer as we're studying together our Healing of America seminars. We have come to the end of our class today, section two. It's been so much fun to be with you. Remember, if for some reason you missed the class, these classes are all online and you can go watch uh, the class that I taught previously or the class that we had today will be online. Uh, Usually it takes about three days to get that online. Please invite your friends, family, neighbors. It's free. We are just here because we love America and we're worried about this land of the free. And we have felt somehow uh, pricking and prompting of our hearts to show up each week. And I promise you, God, God will reward your effort as you do. And so with that, I will bid you all adieu until next week where we study the Re- American Revolutionary War that would set them free. And um, I will stay on if anyone has any questions, but until then, we'll see you next week.